Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt. Welcome to another episode of Any Honey and the Newt. We're glad to have you. Uh, today's episode is certainly one that I'm fond, uh, a topic I'm fond of talking about. But before we get into uh, the meat of this episode, Anthony, tell me a little bit about advanced analytics. What are they and how have they changed our understanding of professional basketball? You said the meat, but I couldn't think of, or the potatoes if you're vegan. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> advanced, or is it a Beyond Burger? Yeah, yeah. That way you can have your meat and eat it too. Uh, no, it's got to be the starch, nothing nutritious. Yeah. <laughs> That's a 90% of Salia's diet, the starch. <laughs> so the advanced analytics. Uh, it's really interesting. I had never really considered this stuff in my basketball fandom, probably until about like 15 years ago, I want to say is when it seemed to start getting popular and uh i hadn't been made aware of it until i started reading this blog called true hoop which eventually got bought by espn and like everything on espn once it becomes part of espn it gets considerably worse then the founder of true hoop like spun off from espn and re-established his uh, blog as like a newsletter thing now so promoting true hoop for all you basketball nerds out there who want to just like subscribe they do like a weekly free uh thing which is really good to read and apparently all i have a capacity for (laughs) so um but yeah i remember in like the early days at least for me i'm gonna say this from my perspective because i'm sure that i do not have the history mentally recorded um but in the beginning um when i first started reading about advanced metrics in basketball you know the basic metrics being count the counting stats right points rebounds assists um uh, at some point plus or minus was considered like an advanced metric but now like nba included it in their box score so i would consider it kind of a counting stat uh, which is basically just a measure of the number of points that your team scores or loses while you're on the court, which I, so I don't think it's a very fair stat. But um, um, so like, yeah, back in the day, like plus and minus was like one of the advanced metrics. Uh, I had also read some articles about like people were looking at like shooting percentages um, when you received a pass and like how long after the pass your shooting percentage was. Um, one of my favorite articles that I remember reading a long time ago was, uh, trying to measure whether the hot hand was like a real thing. And I'm pretty sure that the science around it went like, first it was like, yes, the hot hand exists. And now it's like, no, the hot hand does not exist. It's just, a just kind of a phase. And I don't really remember the, the details one way or the other, <clears throat> but I remember articles coming out. This is like, you know, 15 years ago, like I said, where the, the, the measurements were like trying to judge like what a person's field goal percentage was based on ma- having made their previous shots, which is all really actually really hard to do anyways, um, because we didn't have the camera tracking software that we do now. So that's like another part of it, right? Uh, was it, you want to say like 10 years ago, the NBA started adding 
cameras to the court that tracked player movements, and maybe it's more recent than that. But I feel like ten years. Ago, I think it's older. Well, I, I feel like I know that there were companies who were doing it, but the NBA didn't like fully implement it until mm. I want to say it was like ten years ago. Yeah, I don't remember. I feel like the Boston Celtics and maybe the Atlantic Hawks were like early adopters of it. Yeah, so some teams did have it because I remember the Mavs were like an early, uh, early rider for that, and then, um, mm -hmm. um, like you said, the Boston Celtics, the Philadelphia Seventy Sixers, who. Uh, for all the griping that people gave Daryl Morey, no, sorry, he's not the right one, Sam Hinkie, about the um, Trust the Process Sixers, um, from what I've read, he was such an analytics snob that he tracked everything. He had, he had people uh, hired to track literally everything that every aspect of the team does, uh, both during games and during practices. I remember reading about like tracking free throw percentages during practice and uh, players were getting pissed off about that because they're just like shooting around. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, I, I didn't venture too far into the advanced analytics, but uh, as I started listening to podcasts that used them, I found it as an interesting way to make comparisons, especially beyond the superstars. I mean, often we would focus on the people that were scoring the most points or had the highest assists uh, and making comparisons of who's better and worse or whatever, just primarily on the raw, raw counting numbers. But when we started talking about, you know, starters that aren't superstars or even bench players and trying to figure out who's a more valuable bench player than someone else, it got really difficult to make those comparisons. You know, they played different amounts of minutes in different systems. Uh, different right. roles and so I think the introduction of advanced analytics uh, allowed us as fans to have something to grip onto you know if even if we didn't do the analytics ourselves uh, it was introduced into conversations and articles and things like that so now we can pay attention to more aspects of the game than we ever did before at least uh, it's helped me pay attention to things like picks which I never would have thought I know it's an important part of the game but I wouldn't have thought of it as a statistic yeah i'll do you one better which is that like um you know you see a lot of uh youtube uh channels pop up that break down plays of the game and i remember uh even pretty recently like five to ten years ago the videos that would pop up were mostly from like a coaching perspective like people would bring these up as like training tips for how to like implement them in your game um, but now those same videos, you know, with the, the developed language around the advanced metrics, those same videos and style are being used to explain facets of, facets of the game that the average fan wouldn't notice. And then taking it within the concept of advanced metrics. So when, one thing I like about that, too, is um, it allows for both a, a more data-driven method while tying in the anecdotal evidence from it, it's like, you know, here's a few plays that show exactly what we're articulating here. So that now there's not just um, the developed nomenclature around the play, but also putting it into action so that uh, at least we as uh, readers and fans kind of get that, that sense of developmental practice that is essential for incorporating that new language into your everyday language. That's a really big point because I think the debate about the eye test versus using uh, metrics 
is really a tired debate. I, I feel like maybe initially oh, there were yes. some people that <laughs> were numbers centric and, and focused purely on the stats and other people who weren't familiar with those. And so just knew basketball and, and knew like they could identify talent, even if they couldn't articulate why that person was, was more talented than someone else. But I think now the introduction of, and, and the distribution of an analytics across different media and different kinds of conversations means that we're applying it to the game. It's not something separate from the game. And the the eye test, the, the enjoying someone's talent isn't cheapened by also being able to talk about wins above replacement. One thing that I've noticed is the rise of uh, narrative for play, like developmental players, right? Uh, every website now that's like deep into basketball will write like a know the prospect kind of story where they do this very breakdown of a player in college or high school and why or why not that they will be successful at the NBA level. And here's a bunch of things that show like there is evidence that this player can do, you know, this skill set, this skill set, this skill set. And there, there is evidence that they don't have these other skills, but taking all that into consideration, can they develop into the next LeBron James or Steph Curry or whatever? And, you know, 20 years ago, there was like two websites uh, that would produce content like this, but it was still very much a, I think he's going to be the next Tracy McGrady, end of story. There was no like evidence to display there. Um, and part of that might be because fans just didn't have the language background to to judge one way or the other. And that was all that there was because that's what ESPN produced. Uh, but the other was that there just wasn't enough nuance around the topic to be able to, to like, you could argue your way for it, but there wasn't enough nuance within the fan base to be able to say, oh, I either agree or disagree with your take. And maybe all that we could do is put it into those two bins. But now we're starting to see uh, much more discussion around aspects of those articles instead of just a yes or no binary decision. Yeah, and I think it's changed things for the players, too. I can't remember which player I heard in an interview. I think I want to say it was Vince Carter, but somebody who was initially resistant to the idea of metrics joined a team where it was a heavy priority. And uh, after, like, a half season, realized, like, okay, coach has noticed that when I shoot from this spot on the floor versus this spot three feet over, I shoot 8% better on my jumper. And so I'm going to get to that spot. And that's a, a big part of my game now is no longer just shooting and practicing my, my shooting technique, but practice my movement and, and like how I steer defenders so that I can make my spot available to me. And so that transformed how they approached the game. Uh, the analytics didn't define their game, but it gave them a new way to think about what they needed to do to become better. And so I think that's interesting too. That's, that is really interesting. Uh, it makes me think of um, this terminology used in social media all the time, but actually applies to a lot of different facets, which is the concept of the influencer. And mm -hmm. I wonder how important influencer is in the development of language. Uh, because like, mm -hmm. if you don't have, a, you know, according to like influencer theory, which I'm totally just making up, um, if you don't have like a high profile person willing to buy into, to the usage of that, you know, the tool that you just described in that case, uh, how, 
are you going to get it to adopt within other aspects? And we know right now that teams are very top-down heavy. Players say this all across the board, like the superstar is the leader of the team. And, uh, you know, basically that person sets the tone and we have to make sure that we all support what that person is trying to achieve. And uh, what's interesting here is that team development, like every team has like their leader, right? But teams that where they buy into that philosophy, or at least I should say, where they say that they buy into that philosophy, they do better. And teams where you can tell that it's more dysfunctional, team seem to not do as well. But the reason why I bring up the, the influencer thing is like, um, and I think you're right, it was Vince Carter. So let's just for the purposes of the rest of this conversation, assume it was. Um, but, so if Vince Carter didn't buy into that and this coach wasn't able to get anybody else at that level on board, would we be seeing, you know, maybe it would have been slower to adopt, but would we be seeing players shooting only from set spots on the court? If you look at like shot charts, right, you see like the threes are most heavily in the very corner and it's not even like stretched out a little along that line. It's like very concentrated in the corner. Then there's a gap until around the elbow of the three-point line and then another gap until around the top of the key, right? And so like if you don't have these like influencers to make that, that push like, okay, I totally accept that my jump shot's better here and here as opposed to just willy-nilly anywhere around the three-point arc. Would we have like uh, people using it in other forms? Like would, would we actually have like this kind of analytics-focused three-point shooting that we have today? Hmm. And speaking of influence, I think uh, we can segue into the topic for this episode, which is language. Uh, we've We've been discussing different aspects of subjective experience, you know, perception, perspective, uh, trying to understand what it's like to be an individual. And uh, one of my favorite topics is language. Uh, what is it and how does it impact the way that we think and, and operate? Um, and what all does it entail? We're not going to get into all those details, uh, but let's let's break it open. <laughs> what what uh, interests you, Anthony, in in the topic of of language as as it relates to experience? Language as it relates to experience. I'm trying. I I can't believe I'm blanking on this right now. But there's a movie that I find super funny um, from like the mid '90s. And I'm going to have to Google it because I just can't remember. But it's uh, it's basically starring a guy who throughout the movie just like doesn't speak. He only speaks in like weird sound effects slash noises and gibberish. And um, the context of of like the way he says his gibberish, everybody in this movie world understands what he's saying. And so uh -huh. he's he's kind of like this like super celebrity. Um but like you as the audience just don't understand it but they the way they do it allows like what he's trying to communicate to be articulated so well that you do get the context and you do understand which makes it really funny and uh it's one of those movies where like it's very quotable and uh <laughs> there's just so many ah it's bugging me i'll i'll try and look it up and bring it back later I am Groot. <laughs> I am Groot. It's, it's not too different, except uh, he does he does have multiple things that he says. Uh, Pootie Tang, that, that, that's what the movie's called. 
<laughs> have you ever seen it? I haven't. No. Oh man, it's uh, if you are a fan of language, this movie will probably drive you bonkers, but also is <laughs> is absolutely absurd. That um, sounds awesome. But but going back to your question about language and experience, uh, first, how language even developed is like really interesting to me, and I obviously don't know the answer to that, but. Um, I can't think about how uh, how it's evolved, not just in the human realm, but throughout the hierarchy of um, of life, right? We use this example of like a stomach not knowing or not experiencing digestion, right? But it does do its digestion process. So how do we get from a system like that with like single celled organisms? to a system as rich and complex as human language. And uh, I've mentioned this earlier that I'm very much of the mind that our, our, own, like, our own being and existence isn't as special as we think it is um, because you can see evidence of at least not the same level of complexity or maybe there is some level of complexity within other species of animals, I'm talking whales, dolphins, um, dogs, if you're a dog lover, you you might, maybe this is more personification, but you might notice these kinds of like nuanced behaviors within dogs that give you this idea like, crap, did you just understand what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, just a, a little interjection to piggyback off of that. I think historically, uh, a lot of ink has been spilled on trying to identify what makes humans different from other kinds of creatures. And, you know, early on, it was the idea of a soul, but how is that different from animated animals? Uh, then there was the idea, well, it's reason, but then we started seeing some of the problem-solving capabilities of animals, and so, you know, we had to get more specific, and a popular one that I think still some people kind of latch on to is this idea that language makes us different, and I'm not convinced by that. I feel like you have to have a very narrow conception of language in order to think that, um, partially because maybe maybe when we say language, that's confusing to people. Maybe they think immediately of English, Chinese, French, you know, in specific what we call natural languages that have developed sophisticated grammars and have a bunch of speakers. But I think if you break down what language is and what it's doing, uh, things like gesturing, uh, I mean, if, if American Sign Language is a language, then, then can't gestures and, and charades be linguistic communication? And grunts, you know, like you were just talking about uh, Puditang, uh, making all kinds of noises can still be expressive and communicate something to a, to an audience. And so uh, I'm not sure that that line between human communication, human language and animal communication is really all that different. Yeah. I mean, animals make gestures, but they also do communicate in other ways. I mean, uh, whales are famous for their songs and their echolocation. Um, we talked about bats in a previous episode, uh, which is, also fascinating because it brings about the perspective aspect of of our existence as well um and all you know all these conversations that we've had so far we've only had the three on this topic area is it just shows me how complex and intertwined all of these concepts are i think uh you know at least in our first season the way we discussed this stuff was more discreet right like a lot of the realms they didn't overlap, although we were starting to tease out how much they did overlap. But this season, like all of these topics overlap so much. I, uh, by the end of each episode, I definitely have a hard time segregating one idea from another. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that's 
part of why we're fascinated to talk about this is that when you and I would have conversations uh, about experience and learning and thinking and artificial intelligence and all these topics that we want to get to, we would get kind of bogged down on trying to parse out all these really fundamental concepts that are intertwined and are difficult to, to break apart, which uh, is another aspect of what we want to talk about today, um, refining our concepts through terminology. Um, but before we get there, I kind of want to push that back to the back first uh, and and talk about uh, if language is something that developed evolutionarily, uh, which I think we both embrace. I, let me just say this. We're going to walk into a bunch of controversies and I'm going to stop trying to like give a bunch of caveats because I know uh, enough to be dangerous and not enough to explicate everything <laughs> and so i'm just going to forgive anybody who's who's a specialist uh you know i've studied some of that stuff i enjoy it very much but i have walked away from that realm so i'm not up on the latest research uh please educate us in the comments that caveat is going to be the caveat for the rest of the episode <laughs> um so so yeah if if uh we want to say that language evolved and it, it evolved through the phylogenetic kind of uh, development of species, then what is it about uh, human communication or language? Uh, how does human communication and language relate to human experience and thinking? Like what's what's that relationship? Are we, do we experience and then come up with a word for it? Or does language precede the ability to experience something? You know, things like that. Yeah, that's a, that is a great uh Thing to ask because I kept thinking about like what is the relationship between thought and language um, but I think we we kind of rolled back thought a lot to get to like experience as that like fundamental aspect of being yeah and I have uh, a lot of personal biases to answer these questions so I'm going to try and and not strong arm <laughs> the conversation uh, just introduce one idea at a time and let, let you decide if you agree with it, want to challenge it, whatever. Let's do it. I wish I had my challenge button so I can just burp. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So I'm going to start by saying that I think that the ability to differentiate is basically the, the essence of what it is to conceptualize. So if you can discriminate between A and not A and, and use behavior to make that discrimination, then you're operating at the very basic level of language, which I think that's a highly controversial statement. But uh, for me, that's kind of what enables the structure for, for language at large. So if discernment is the basis of language and being able to express discernment, then uh, we get into the issue of what we talked about last week, qualia and subjective experience. Like if my experience is different than your experience, uh, how do I know that what I name matches the thing that you name and uh how do we know that our concepts are actually connecting to the same things in the world so there's this question of is language something separate from it and layer layered on top of the world uh do you have any initial thoughts on on that my initial thought is that um <clears throat> i mean maybe this this is going to get to where you're going but that the the language is there at least in in this particular form to help us i mean maybe it is to provide the that qualia 
right? Like if we both gestured at something, um, you know, you, even if we have no spoken language, I could point at like a tree and you know that I'm talking about that tree because I pointed to it. So now you have like a, a frame of reference there. Um, if I just, I like, love that you use that example. <laughs> good. I, it's just, well, we're on the same wavelength and, uh, for all the podcast listeners, uh, Corbin and I do communicate through telepath telepathy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I just quickly want to interject and then I'll let you go on with your example. But, uh, Wittgenstein raises this problem or this question when somebody raises their arm and sticks out their finger, how do we know to look in the direction of their finger instead of their shoulder? Right. It's, it's a line, a line segment, and there's two ends to that segment. So how do we all know which direction to to avert our eyes to identify what's being pointed out? Damn. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you just blew my mind with that question. It's such a simple, stupid question that I had never thought about. But now all of a sudden I'm like, do humans just have some fundamental understanding of ve vector mathematics just like <laughs> built within us? Because uh, I've always thought about the the development of math as a language, um, but it's also a tool and it's also a system. And I, you, uh, I'm, I'm already breaking down. Let's just let's just move past this. But that is a that is a, I, I a really interesting point that like we just somehow instinctively know. But I wonder if that was like a like the very first caveman to point everybody else just look behind him. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just suggest instead of trying to argue for it, because I think we do want to move on. I, I think that there's a lot that has to do with social enculturation. I think it might be a learned behavior that we developed over time. And, and there's something about the codification of language, right? It's not just I'm making up words as I experience things in order to differentiate them from other things. Those, those sounds and those written symbols have to be codified enough that somebody else can see a repetition or a pattern to be able to understand how they're connected to the thing that they're distinguishing. Yeah. And I'll add to that with, um, it's easy to think about like the first time a human has ever said or done something. Um, but we forget constantly that the, you know, our prior form in evolution had some basis in language as well. Right. So like you said, it's a learned behavior, but this is over like literally billions of years and not just, you know, when the first, as we define human popped up. Right. Like mm. our primate ancestors uh, will probably had some form of like pointing communication. Uh, we already know that like chimpanzees make tools and stuff like that. So why wouldn't there also be other language uh, development within that? Right. So like the first human to point wasn't just you know developing a whole new method that that behavior and that structure existed well beyond that person and you mentioned like maybe humans have an innate uh, ability for vector mathematics or whatever but a common linguistic uh thesis is the idea of generative grammar that despite the variety of natural languages there's something uh, hardwired into the brain the physiology of the human brain that um that I don't want to say predetermines, but predisposes maybe the ways that we structure and interpret our world. And so even though there's a lot of variety among the different languages, there are some things that seem to be 
consistent. Um, the differentiating of things into objects uh, instead of processes. So you have nouns. The ability to distinguish um, different types of action from different states of being. So so being verbs versus action verbs. Some of these like very generic gra grammatic concepts, uh, some would argue, is physiologically hardwired into us. I don't know if I buy that, but I just I wanted to throw that out there because I think that's at least touching on some of the stuff that you were indicating. That's interesting because I just kept thinking about how uh, how much our body language plays into the context of the word. Uh, sometimes you hear like a new word and if it's similar enough to a word that you already know uh, and the body language is all there, you can kind of get a sense in what the other person is trying to communicate. Uh, sometimes a word is so foreign that you just don't get it at all. Um, mm. and so I, and maybe this isn't, maybe we table this for a little bit later, but th what you mentioned just made me think about those two examples. Yeah. Uh, let me wade into another, I'm just kind of like throwing these out here and we can stop at any moment on a topic you want to engage in, but the spaghetti method. I think, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and a lot of it, I think is going to stick to the wall and we'll be coming back to these topics over and over again. So maybe it's good to just get them out there. Let me wade into the Sapir Whorf controversy. So this is a, uh, it became popularized. I can't remember how it got into pop culture, but uh, it, it was uh, a theory that was developed by Warf, Benjamin Whorf's student, Sapir, or do I have that backwards? Um, and somehow it got attached to both of them, even though the student's the one that really popularized the theory. And it's the idea that our ability to think of concepts is is determined by our language so if we don't have a concept for it we can't we can't think it we we put that object or concept or experience into another concept and so uh something like uh one of the examples would be if if you have a, a language that has the numbers one and two and then anything higher than two is just called sum Right. And then how do you distinguish between four and five? If you've got two piles of rocks, you say, well, there's some and there's some. Uh, maybe that sum is more than that sum. But how much more? Well, that one's easy because it's one. Right. But what if it's a pile of seven and ten? Well, now we've got some more some. And what's the difference between them? Some. <laughs> and so you have a, a lot of difficulty in developing any kind of mathematics or, or complex mathematics with that kind of uh, communication and discernment. That's a that's really funny. It reminds me of I had just learned about this just a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. Uh, but the concept of ethnomathematics is a new thing that's being studied in the education culture realm, and uh, basically what this what the research field is all about is trying to understand um, how big a role culture and language play in the learning and understanding and uh, articulation of mathematical concepts. Uh, and I think, I'm pretty sure I read recently that it applies also to science. Um, but I'm gonna, so I'm gonna steer clear of exactly what you just warned about, which is that um, <clears throat> it's not that, like if you don't have that language in your culture, you just can't understand it. But it's more like uh, it's harder for you to grasp and develop the uh, 
the tools if you don't have that language, if you don't have the language around it. But like you, we've kind of just demonstrated um, that we have some of these things, you know, I, I'll use the word innate because I don't know if it's hardwired or learned or whatever, but there's something inside of us that allows us to, to continue to develop uh, this context and language. And really, a lot of the times, all it takes is for you to be able to develop the experience with it. Right. So when we talk about language, right, we're developing our experience with the language. Um, and a lot of times in um, in the way that I do things at work, right, I'm trying to build people's experience with a topic. And so we actually purposely don't use language in the beginning because we want the experience to take uh, to take hold first. And then we introduce, you know, at least from the English language and sometimes in Spanish. Uh, we'll introduce the language so that then there's an assignment of like, okay, this thing that I was doing is called this and not like a, this is what it's called and here's the definition of it and now you're going to do this. And so this allows people to kind of help develop their own uh, experience and meaning and then, uh, then we can start to apply it in different ways and show like, well, you know, professionals do it this way and this other group over here does it that way and in your culture you might do something like this and there's no real wrong way of going about the process in that way that's a really good point anthony and i like how careful and nuanced you were with how you phrase that because that is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is some of the crazy claims that i think are made with with this relationship of language to thinking uh i'm gonna give an example that i think was popularized and I'm pretty sure it's been debunked, but I can't give you the specifics about the science or anything. So I'm going to be careful about going into too much detail. But it was this idea that uh, there was a claim being made that the Native Americans couldn't see the colonial ships coming to the coastline uh, because they didn't have the the terminology of of that kind of naval craft. And so uh, their inability to name something like that and to have a concept for it meant that physiologically they also couldn't perceive it. And so they're looking out across the sea and they don't see these boats coming in to invade their their land. Which to me, I mean, I, I think it's actually been debunked, but that also just seems like a really strong claim that, that I think we would need a lot of explanation of how something uh, conceptual can, can change our physiology like that. I uh, can't help but think of your earlier example of somebody like pointing at the ships and then everybody else simultaneously not knowing what that means and looking behind the guy as they <laughs> as they look in the direction of his shoulder or or her shoulder. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I think we have a lot more to say about this. I, I kind of knew that we would. And so this seems like a good breaking point. Let's let's set aside the extreme versions of this theory and we'll come back next episode and talk about more nuanced, I think more more uh, reasonable approaches to the relationship of language and thinking.